Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for its eternal, unchanging truth and power. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that causes your word to lodge in our hearts and transform us. And we invite you, Lord of word and spirit, open up each one of us to you now and make my words your words. In Jesus' name. Amen. In um, 1988, a um, man called Tim Hansel wrote a spoof letter to Jesus from a firm of management consultants. It was in the book Eating Problems for Breakfast. And it concerned the potential of Jesus' 12 disciples for the new enterprise that he was launching. So, from Jordan Management Consultants. Dear Sir, Thank you for submitting the resumes of the 12 men you have picked for managerial positions in your new organization. All of them have now taken our battery of tests, and we've not only run the results through our computer, but also arranged personal interviews for each of them with our psychologist and vocational aptitude consultant. It is the staff opinion that most of your nominees are lacking in background, education, and vocational aptitude for the type of enterprise you are undertaking. They do not have the team concept. We would recommend that you continue your search for persons of experience in managerial ability and proven capability. Simon Peter is emotionally unstable and given to fits of temper. Andrew has absolutely no qualities of leadership. The two brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, place personal interest above company loyalty. Thomas demonstrates a questioning attitude that would tend to undermine morale. We feel that it's our duty to tell you that Matthew has been blacklisted by the Greater Jerusalem Better Business Bureau. James, the son of Alpheus and Thaddeus, definitely have radical leanings and both registered a high score on the manic depressive scale. <laughs> One of the candidates, however, shows great potential. He is a man of ability and resourcefulness, meets people well, has a keen business mind, and has contacts in high places. He's highly motivated, ambitious, and responsible. We recommend Judas Iscariot as your controller and right-hand man. All of the other profiles are self-explanatory. We wish you every success in your new venture. Sincerely, Jordan Management Consultants. Who else but God would choose to transform the world by picking impetuous Simon Peter, fiery James and John, despairing, doubting Thomas, Simon the political zealot, and the rest of them. Humanly, as the report suggests, only Judas from Kerioth looked the part, and that may have been why he was put in charge of the apostles' finances. Later, after his betrayal and his suicide, the remaining apostles selected two possible replacements for him, who must presumably have struck them as in every way suitable candidates for the office. The lot fell on Matthias, of whom nothing else is ever heard again in Scripture. But meanwhile, God had a plan. Now, if anybody had been asked at that time to nominate as an apostle the least likely young candidate in Jerusalem, they might well have said, well, what about that utter pain, Saul of Tarsus? And everybody would have fallen about laughing. Him? Saul? I mean, he's the worst bigot in the city. And the person trying to make the joke might have gone on tongue-in-cheek. Well, you know, nobody can say he lacks zeal. As for legalistic righteousness, he's faultless. He's a brilliant theologian. He's got a brain the size of a planet. I mean, it seems to me he's wholly qualified. 
Yes, but there's just one thing, isn't there? He wants to destroy the church. Yeah, there is that. Yeah. Now, God is so perverse by human standards. He chooses 1 Corinthians 1 verse 27, the foolish things to shame the wise. The weak things of the world to shame the strong. The lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify things that are. Why would God do that? It's there in verse 29 of 1 Corinthians 1. So that no one may boast before him. So that no one may boast before him. Why did Jesus attract a ragtag and bobtail of prostitutes and tax collectors following him? Because they had no grounds whatever for spiritual self-confidence in the face of God. The people who found him difficult were the religious people, the scribes and the Pharisees, the ones who seemed to have everything going for them, who thought they had something worth offering to God. The biggest single obstacle to God in a human heart is not lust or murder or chronic dishonesty. It's self-vindication. Now, I speak as an absolute acknowledged expert on this. I am a lawyer. I can and do argue till the cows come home to prove that I was right all along in whatever it was I've done or said. <laughs> Poor Davina, when we were first married, I wouldn't allow her to go to sleep until we had discussed any issue that had come up to the point of extinction so that I could prove I was right. <laughs> My journal is almost one sustained argument with God trying to justify my ideas, my behaviour and my activities until he forces me to accept that my attitudes, my thoughts, my words and my actions have been a long way from what Jesus's would have been in the same circumstances. Self-righteousness and self-vindication are deadly, deadly sins. The Pharisees had interpreted the Old Testament law in such a way that, admittedly, with the most enormous effort and striving, but they could just about convince themselves, we've got it right, we've earned our way to heaven. And I'm sorry to confess that deep down, when I first came to faith, I think I really believed God forgive me, that God was lucky to have Peter Owen Clark on his side. <laughs> How wrong can one be? And this is why Jesus shocked people so much with the Sermon on the Mount, raising the bar so much higher than the Pharisees had. You've heard it said, Matthew 5, that it was said to the people long ago, don't murder. But I tell you that anyone who's even angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. You've heard that it was said, don't commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who even looks at a woman lustfully has committed adultery with her in his heart. Etc., etc. Don't resist an evil person. Someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other side. Love your enemies. Your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees. I mean, oof. it's all summed up in the terrifying phrase, Matthew 5 48 Be perfect, as your Heavenly Father is perfect. Well, if that's the standard, as the disciples later asked Matthew 19, well, who then can be saved? And that's precisely Jesus' point. With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. 
humans cannot earn their way to heaven. Now, Saul was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Galatians 1 tells us he was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of his own age, extremely zealous for the traditions of his fathers. But the very things that the world might have regarded as his qualifications for becoming a prominent servant of God were precisely the things that were getting in the way. He had to learn, Philippians 3, to count all his human attributes as so much done. To consider all the things in which he might have taken pride a loss on account of the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus as his Lord. And that's why he was later able to write 2 Corinthians 11 verse 30, if I must boast, I'll boast of the things that show my weakness. Things like the Merry Wives of Windsor, fast, the Falstaffian ignominy of being lowered over a city wall in a laundry basket. That's not what you expect of a great religious leader, is it? Here am I, admire me. Here. No, no, I'm, I'm such a failure. I had to be lowered over a laundry basket and shoved over the walls. Things like the thorn in his flesh, which he described as a messenger of Satan to torment him. Allowed by God, in spite of his not having his prayer answered three times, that's not something you get boasting about by many religious leaders either, to keep him from becoming conceited. It wasn't his weaknesses that worried Paul, it was his strengths. For Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. The Lord had told him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, says Paul, I'll boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. He even had a name change to remind him. Saul means desired, longed for, wanted. Paul means small and insignificant. His very name was a reminder, I'm, I'm only little, I'm useless. So we have the archenemy of Christianity breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples, going to the high priest, asking him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. The very last person to appoint as an apostle. I mean, it would be like announcing that Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi of Islamic State was to become the Archbishop of Canterbury. Now, Paul's call to serve the Lord is quite simply unthinkable on those grounds. And there's another reason why Paul can't be an apostle. This dynamic young man appointed by the high priest to root out Christianity is someone with everything possible going for him humanly. Confident in his own energy, zeal and ability. Just the sort of person that Jesus apparently doesn't choose. And yet he does. God delights to confound our expectations. He chooses the unthinkable, the unacceptable, the foolish, the corrupt. He chooses you and me. So what are the implications for us? Well, there are two primary ones. The first is that it doesn't matter what your past has been. You could have been a Nazi leader. In heaven we're going to meet a number of those condemned at the Nuremberg trials for appalling atrocities because they subsequently repented and accepted Christ's death in payment for their sins. You could have been a paedophile, a murderer, a swindler, an arsonist, a drug dealer, a rapist. 
Whatever you may have done or failed to do, the punishment is decreed. Hell. But that punishment has been borne for you by Jesus, if you have accepted his invitation to you, that you unite your life with his. And there's nothing you can ever do to deserve that. It's a free gift. It's God's grace. All you can do is say, yes, please, Lord. Yes, please, Lord, I'm so sorry for leading my life my way rather than yours. Thank you, Jesus, for dying in my place, for going to hell in my place, for opening up heaven to me and me to heaven. Please now direct my life in every way in future. Amen. And the second implication is this. The obvious sins like murder and lust and theft are the easiest ones to recognize and repent of. It's the things we consider to be our strengths that are most likely to block our relationship with God. When we start feeling pleased with ourselves, when we begin to pat ourselves on the back a bit, thinking, well, yes, I did rather behave rather well over that issue. Or, I've been very faithful with my quiet times recently. Those times we catch ourselves feeling judgmental or critical of other people. And the Pharisees were so good at that. They were so righteous and up themselves that they didn't like to go into the public marketplace in case some hideous sinner corrupted them and polluted them just by touching them. Oh, they're all bad. They're all wrong. <laughs> I thank you, Father, that I'm not like this publican. A critical spirit is an insidious and a dreadful thing which needs to be recognized and expelled as quickly as possible. Instead, Philippians 2 verse 3, in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Jesus said, do not judge, or you too will be judged. Because otherwise, thinking that we're better than other people, we begin to trust ourselves, don't we? And thus disqualify ourselves for heaven, because we're no longer wholly reliant on Jesus. You can never qualify for heaven but you can disqualify yourself for it by trusting in your own goodness instead of his. Because only that which is of Jesus will ever pass the portals of paradise. But in Jesus, and only in Jesus, everyone is accepted. However vile, however brilliant, however foolish, however innocent. It's all of Jesus. And he is sufficient. Let's pray. Father, we're sorry for those things of which we are ashamed. But Lord, we're also sorry for those things of which we are not ashamed, where we are pleased with ourselves. And Lord, we are so sorry for all those things where we fail to be wholly dependent upon you. Lord Jesus, we confess our utter need of you in every area. And we lay before you now our weaknesses and our strengths. And we say, Lord, come, Lord Jesus. 
Have your way in us. Transform us, because, Lord, it's only that which is Christ in us that lives forever, that has eternal life. So, Lord, may you reach into every corner of our lives by your Holy Spirit. May nothing be unredeemed, untouched. May everything be transformed. May we be wholly yours, us in Christ and Christ in us, the hope of glory. Amen.